First Samuel chapter number 20. First Samuel chapter number 20. This chapter has been extremely encouraging to me this week. Just as if I've, I've dealt with it in my personal study and studying for this sermon and uh, meditating on it. And tonight I, I, I just want to encourage you to be always meditating on your Bibles. There, if, if there's one message I could give to you, did I just hear crickets? Is I'm already that boring? <laughs> Brother Dustin, please turn your phone off. Thank you. Um, in all seriousness, though, there's one genuine thing that I could, I could give you that would help you every day um, tonight would be meditate on the Word of God. The, this, this text came alive to me on Wednesday or Thursday whenever, whenever Brother Mike and I uh, were just talking about it. And when you're talking about the Word, that's meditation. That's, that's Bible meditation. And this, this text came alive to me. So study the Bible with somebody. Study the Bible in your family. Study the Bible with a, a friend. But meditate on Scripture. That, that will encourage your heart every single day. 1 Samuel chapter number 20. If you were going through a crisis, who would be the first person you would run to for help? If your life was extremely burdened by something right now, who would be the first person that you would go to? I remember one time I was with my family in Lubbock, Texas, where I grew up, and we were eating at a steakhouse called Logan Steakhouse. Texas Roadhouse hadn't made its way there yet, so uh, like peasants, we were eating at Logan Steakhouse, trying to enjoy a steak there. I was, I was a kid, man. I was probably... Nine, ten years old, and it was my parents, myself, my brother, uh, my uncle, uh, Kobe, I believe, and my grandma. We're sitting there enjoying our, our meal and our time together. I remember the exact uh, table. I could take you to the table we were sitting at. And then in, come, in came my other uncle, uh, stumbling into Logan's uh, steakhouse with blood uh, running down his face and blood in his hair, he had really long hair, blood in his hair, blood running down his face. And, and I just remember my dad and my grandma and uncle jumping up from their seats and, and going outside with them. And then later we were sent for and were told to come join them as well. And what had happened was he uh, was with a girlfriend that he had uh, kids with and, and they were living together. And they got into a verbal altercation and the verbal altercation uh, became physical uh, rather quickly and she took a telephone and beat him over the head with it not like a, an iPhone like that's these are throw worthy right here but she took one of the big you know the old school telephones you would take off the wall and and beat him over the head with it so he comes up to Logan's steakhouse with blood running down his face and and his the the lady's father-in-law was there and and he was basically defenseless so so in this really crisis, I mean, their kids were there. It, it, like, this is a crisis moment. <laughs> like, when you get beat over the head in front of your kids and in front of father-in-law and defenseless moment, he, he did uh, what was natural to him, and he ran to the people who loved him the most, which were his mom and his two brothers. 
Now, something as drastic like that may not be happening, probably isn't happening in your life right now, but you no doubt go through crisis moments in your life. Every single one of us go through moments in our life that leaves us feeling like our world's been turned upside down. Every single one of us face that. We all have moments when we're left feeling like we don't know what to do. Is that true? The question I want to pose to you tonight then is this. In those moments of crisis, who do you turn to? And why do you turn to them? In moments of crisis, in moments of fear, in moments of great burdens in your life, who do you turn to and why do you turn to them? In 1 Samuel 20, David finds himself in a moment of crisis. If you'll remember the wild events of chapter 19, David escaped Saul's plan to kill him in his home. And then we find David doing much of what he'll continue to do in the upcoming chapters, and that's flee for his life. This time he didn't flee to Samuel, he fled to Jonathan. In fact, David didn't just flee to Jonathan, he threw himself at the mercy of Jonathan. Would you look at verse 1 with me? It says in 1 Samuel 20, verse 1, And David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is mine iniquity? What is my sin before thy father that he seeketh my life? And he said unto him, God forbid, thou shalt not die. Behold, my father will do nothing, either great or small, but that he will show it me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. And David swore moreover and said, Thy father certainly knoweth that I have found grace in thine eyes. And he saith, Let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, there is but a step between me and death. I want to approach tonight as if we were looking at scenes of a movie. So in this first scene, David brought the fears of being hunted down by Saul to Jonathan. After being hunted down by Saul and, and being miraculously delivered, divinely delivered from Saul through the working of Samuel and, and the, the whole prophesying thing that we saw last week, it was really uh, spectacular is what it was. David finds himself now taking his fears to, if not the most person uh, he trusted in all the world, at least the second most. If Samuel was number one, Jonathan would have been a close number two, if not number one. So David's coming to Jonathan. And David's saying to Jonathan, Jonathan, what's going on? Why is your dad hunting me down like a dog? Why is he trying to kill me? Why is he trying to take my life? Jonathan, what exactly have I done? And Jonathan was in disbelief. Did you see that? Jonathan was in disbelief because back in chapter 19, Saul told Jonathan, I won't, I won't kill him. I'll, I'll lay back. I'm not going to pursue him. I'm not going to uh, try to kill him. I, I just won't do it. And then he went behind Jonathan's back and went after killing David anyways. So Jonathan's oblivious. I, I heard one, uh, I read one commentator this week that said that the author of this got the timeline wrong. Because Jonathan would have known that Saul was trying to kill David. That's not true. Jonathan, yes, witnessed Saul throw a javelin at him. But then he also heard from his father's own mouth right after saying, okay, I won't try to kill him anymore. So Jonathan's oblivious here. He's saying, no, 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 he's, he's not trying to kill you. If he was trying to kill you, he would have told me. And David said, that's where you're wrong. 
You see, the reality of it is, Jonathan, your dad's still after me. He's still trying to kill me. He's still trying to put me away. He even says in verse number three, he says, there's but a step. There's but a step between me and death. Your father, Jonathan, is trying to kill me. In scene number two of this chapter, David and Jonathan formed a plan to find out Saul's true intentions. Verse four, it says, then said Jonathan unto David, Whatsoever thy soul desireth, I will even do it for thee. And David said unto Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king at meat. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field unto the third day at even. If thy father at all miss me, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me that he might run to Bethlehem, his city. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. But if he say thus, it is well, thy servant shall have peace. But if he be very wroth, then be sure that evil is determined by him. The next day apparently was going to be the first day of the month. And while for many of us today, that means payday, right? Well, for the Jewish people, the Israelite nation, what that meant to them was it was a day for them to offer sacrifice and offer sacrifice to God. What it meant for the king and his court was uh, the beginning of a one to two day festival. A time when they would observe the offerings and sacrifices, yes, but then a two to three more days or one to two more days of having a festival and celebrating and eating. David tells Jonathan, I'm expected to be there tomorrow. I'm expected to be at this feast with everyone, but I'm not going to go. And here's what I want you to do, Jonathan. I want you to go to the feast I'm going to stay back. I'm going to hide in the field. But you go, and here's how we'll know if your dad's trying to kill me or not. If your dad says uh, nothing about it, if he doesn't lose his temper over it, then we know all is well. But if he's angry, if he's wroth, the Bible says, if he's angry, if he's mad about it, then you'll know, Jonathan, that your dad still is trying to kill me. You'll see it firsthand for yourself that your dad still wants me to die. David even said this. He said, if I've sinned against your father, kill me now. He said, if if I've done wrong, please just save yourself the trip, save yourself the hassle and just destroy me now. But apparently Jonathan didn't think David had anything to die for. So he agreed upon David's request to do some detective work and find out whether or not Saul still had plans to kill David. In the third scene, Jonathan gave David the signs to look for that would signify Saul's intentions towards David. Look at verse 18. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow's the new moon, and thou shalt be missed, because thy seat will be empty. And when thou hast stayed three days, then thou shalt go down quickly and come to the place where thou didst hide thyself when the business was in hand, and shalt remain by the stone Azel. And I will shoot three arrows on the side thereof, as though I shot at a mark. So he says, I'm going to go out and get some target practice. And when I'm doing this, he says, behold, I will send a lad, saying, go, find out the arrows. If I expressly say unto the lad, behold, the arrows are on this side of thee, take them, and then come thou. For there is peace to thee, and no hurt, as the Lord liveth. But if I say unto the young man, behold, the arrows are beyond thee, Go thy way, for the Lord hath sent thee away. Here's the plan. David was going to hide for three days. On that third day, Jonathan was going to come back to the field David was hiding in. And David was supposed to position himself near a stone. 
Okay? And, and while he was there, Jonathan said, this is how I'm going to communicate. I don't, we don't need to be caught. I, I can't approach you. I don't want to be seen with you. That probably isn't wise. So here's how I'm going to let you go, what, let you know what you need to do. I'm going to bring a, a lad with me, a, a, a young boy with me, and he's going to fetch my arrows. I'm going to get some target practice in. If I shoot to the one side or the other of this stone, then here's what that means to you, David. That means that, that my father's not trying to kill you anymore. That means it's safe to come out of hiding and come, and, and come back with me to the king's palace. But if I shoot beyond the lad and I tell the lad that I've shot beyond him, then this is what that means. David, it's not safe here. Get out of Dodge. That's the plan. That's the plan. Jonathan then goes to, back to the city and gets ready for this feast while David finds himself a good hiding spot in the field. I'm not going to read the, the next section of verses. I, I just kind of want to, not kind of want to, I want to tell you the story of what goes on here. You kind of get to see the schizophrenia that is going on with Saul. Verses 24 through 35, it's one of the most intense scenes in the entire narrative of 1 Samuel. It's very intense. On the first day of the feast, they all come to the king's court and they're sitting around his table. And, and Saul, he's, he's got his favorite seat right up against the wall so no one can attack him from behind. Now on one hand, that's probably wise as a king. But on the other hand, there's a little bit of schizophrenia in that. He's, he's worried that, that someone, probably David, is going to come up behind him and take his throne from him by force. So, so Saul is sitting uh, up against the wall and, and Jonathan is there and Abner's there and David's seat is there. And on the first night, it must have been a really, really awkward dinner time. David was obviously gone. Saul, in his own heart, obviously still wants David dead, but no one says a word about it. I can imagine it was pretty awkward for Jonathan. But the author lets us know something. Saul took note that David wasn't there. Saul said, he must be unclean. If he's not here, this is a, this is a ceremonial feast. If David's not here, that must mean he's unclean. He's convincing himself in his mind. He's trying to convince himself that, that, that David's not, he's not conspiring. He's not doing something crazy. He, he's, he's, he's just, he's, he's unclean. He, he must have gotten into something that would have made him unclean for the ceremony. That's why he's not here. He's thinking to himself. While everyone else around him is eating the meal and enjoying themselves, Jonathan's probably not enjoying himself, but while everyone else is eating, Saul's having this schizophrenic type moment in his mind. Convincing himself that he's unclean. Which would make sense for David, right? Because David was a person of integrity. And David was someone who held to the law of God. So it makes sense. But Saul, he's, he's convincing himself why he's not there. The next day, however, it's the same setting. They're all eating. Saul notices he's not there for the second straight time. So, Jonathan, um, have you seen David? You know where he's at? It's second, 
night of not being here. I, I understand last night why I wouldn't have been here. He might have been unclean, but, but tonight there's, there's no ceremony. There's nothing that would prevent him from being here tonight. So, Jonathan, do you, know what's, do you know what's going on with David? Yeah, well, I, I saw David a couple days ago and he, he told me about the sacrifice he had to make with his family and, and his brother. You know, you know how he is. He actually commanded David to come up to Bethlehem to join the sacrifice. So, so David came and he talked to me about it and, and that's where he is. And then all of a sudden, Saul snapped. He snapped. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman! Don't you lie to me! Don't you lie to me! I know you're lying! Don't you know that I know that you've chosen the son of Jesse to your shame? No, it's there. He snapped. Oh, Jonathan. 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 Don't you see, Jonathan, what I'm trying to do? Jonathan, I'm trying to protect you. Jonathan, I'm trying to help you. Don't you know that if this son of Jesse isn't removed, that your throne's not going to be established? Jonathan, this isn't about David's son. This is about you. This is about your kingdom. This is about our kingdom. So, Jonathan, just go get him. Just go get him. Just go, go get David. Let's kill him. We'll kill him together and we'll put this all behind us. Well, then Jonathan gave Saul a little taste of his own medicine. Fires back at him. What has he done, Dad? What has David done that's so egregious that you want to kill him for? Talk about a dysfunctional family. <laughs> Saul grabs his trusty javelin. By the way, horrible aim. Throws it at Jonathan. Misses. And Jonathan leaves. It says Jonathan was grieved about it. It says he ate no food that day. He was grieved. But it wasn't because of the way his father just treated him. It was because of the way his father just treated David. So, Jonathan goes back to David with the bad news. Let's look at verse 37. Jonathan took a boy out to the field with him and, and shot the three arrows just as he said he would do. And it says, and when the lad was come to the place of the arrow which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried after the lad and said, is not the arrow beyond thee? And Jonathan cried after the lad, make heed, make speed, haste, stay not. And Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the lad knew not anything. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his artillery unto the lad and said unto him, Go, carry them to the city. And as soon as the lad was gone, David arose out of the place toward the south and fell on his face to the ground and bowed himself three times and kissed. And they kissed one another and wept on one another until David exceeded. Jonathan told David with those arrows that Saul was after his life still. The original plan was for David to gather up his things and hit the road. But that's not what happened. They came together. They hugged. They wept. 
they both probably knew this was going to be one of the last times that they get to spend time with each other. The, the plan was for them to not be seen together. But at the end of the chapter, we see them hugging and weeping. And then in verse 41, when it says David exceeded, that means David wept more. He cried more. I think it was in this moment that reality struck David. It was in this moment that David realized he was losing everything. His wife, his best friend and brother-in-law, his relationship to the king, which, by the way, David never wanted to end. I think David loves Saul. David was losing his relevance. He was losing his position of power, which he saw as service to his God and to his people. He was losing everything like that. And I think it hit him in that moment as he weeped and he welled with Jonathan. David's life in that moment when he saw those arrows and he heard Jonathan say they are beyond thee, he knew right then and there his life was changing, drastically changing. In such a moment of crisis, I'm sure to David, having a Jonathan as a friend was priceless to him. Why did David choose Jonathan in this moment of crisis? Why Jonathan? You ever thought about that? Why the king's son? Why the person, the one person who had the most to gain in this entire situation had he double-crossed David? Do you think that ever crossed David's mind as he's sitting in the field waiting for Jonathan to come back? Do you ever think he thought, what if he double crosses me? What if he leads Saul right to me? What, What if this happens? Why did David? Do you see what I mean by the first point? He threw himself at the mercy of Jonathan? The successor to the throne should David be killed and Saul reign? Why would he throw himself at the mercy of Jonathan? Here's why. Please get this. David threw himself at the mercy of Jonathan, not because Jonathan was his friend, not because he was his brother-in-law, but because he was bound to him by covenant. It was bigger than a friendship. It was bigger than being related by marriage. It was based on the covenant that they had with each other. What is a covenant? One person said this, a covenant is a binding agreement or compact between two or more parties. These kinds of agreements or contracts uh, always contain promises and vows. And notice this isn't merely a civil contract. No, get this, people, please. This was not simply a business deal ratified by a human court. No, this is a covenant forged in the fires of faith. That's why I turned to Jonathan. Not because they were best friends. Not because they were fishing buddies. Not because they had a lot of things in common. Not because they enjoyed going to war together. Not because of anything like that at all. No, he turned to Jonathan because Jonathan was a person that he had a covenant that was forged in the fires of service to their God with. That's why he turned to Jonathan. 
Look at verse uh, 8, chapter 20. Therefore, David says, thou shalt deal kindly with thy servant, for thou hast brought thy servant into a covenant of the Lord with thee. Verse 23. And as touching the matter which thou and I have spoken, behold, the Lord be, the Lord be between thee and me forever. Verse number 42. The Lord be between me and thee and between my seed and thy seed after thee. And he arose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. They had a covenant bond. And you know who is in the middle of that bond? God Almighty. God Almighty was in the center of that bond. If anyone could have destroyed David for his ultimate benefit, it was Jonathan. This covenant, oh man, this covenant is covered in the faithfulness and the grace of God. You see, God knew that Saul was going to try to kill David. So what better way, get this, what better way to ensure the safety and protection of David uh, than to uh, let the future king and David's hearts knit together? What better way to ensure David's safety and protection? The king's son of all people is who God sent into David's life to form a covenant in between them two and the Lord. The Lord's kind of got a funny sense of humor, doesn't he? The one person that could have protected him the most was the one person that could have wiped him out the easiest. It's the covenant between Jonathan, David, and the Lord. David found comfort in this covenant. He found confidence in this covenant. David recognized that this covenant between he and Jonathan was a gift from God. This evening, in times of crisis and trials in your own life, who or what is it that you run to to find comfort and confidence? When your kids are in a state of rebellion and no matter what you do, or what you say can turn their hearts back towards God. And you feel that pressure on you. Who do you turn to? Kiddos, when you see your parents not living out the godly marriage that they're supposed to. And the only thing in your home is hurt and confusion. Who do you turn to? When the test results come back in mercy, it seems like this is happening more and more and more. But when the test results come back and it's the exact thing that you were the most scared of, in that moment, who is it that you turn to? When your responsibilities and pressures of life are piling up on you and it just seems like you can't get relief, who do you turn to? Young people, when, when, when your parents want you to do one thing, but you know, God, man, I just got a text message today. From a young person who knows they want to do, that, that God wants them to do one thing, but their parents want them to do something totally different than that. What do you do then? I got a text literally saying my faith is being tested right now because of what's going on in my home. Who in the world do you turn to then? When you get out of bed in the morning and you realize it hits you, you're not as young as you used to be. You're not as young as you, hey, no, get this. You're not as young. I, I've, got a, I've got a grandpa that, that, that pretty much sits in his recliner all the time because his body hurts. He's had over a dozen back surgeries. What do you do when you wake up one morning and realize that you're never going to be as young as you used to be and you're always going to have to depend upon someone else to help you? That can send fear into a person. What do you do then? 
When you're phasing out of one job and into a next, but you don't know what that next is. And you have no clue how you're going to provide for your family. Who do you turn to then? What do you turn to then? When those situations or situations like it are going on in your life, where do you run for comfort? We all run somewhere. We all turn to someone or something. I've got an even better question. To whom should you run? Not who do you run to. Whom should you run to? Number one, run to the brothers, your brothers and sisters that you're in a covenantal relationship with. I'm not talking about friends that say they're Christian. I'm not talking about worldly friends at the workplace. I'm not talking about anything like that. I'm talking about people that you know walk with God. You see, it's one thing to take your problems to a friend or to a peer at work, but it's a totally different thing to take your fears of your current crisis to a person that you know walks with the Lord every single day. And we we have what I'm talking about right here, perfectly set up, called the local church. What better place to to find someone to to forge a relationship in the fires of faith than right here in this body? Church, I I just want to encourage you tonight. I I seriously, that's when I was thinking about the purpose of, of why I'm preaching this message. I just want you to be encouraged tonight to not run to the world, to not run to worldly pleasures, not run to worldly friends, but come and find someone at this church, at this body right here, that you know walks with God, that you know is passionate about the Word, that you know is passionate about prayer, that you know is passionate about the kingdom, and that you know is passionate about you. And share your burdens, share your fears, share your crisis with them. We are your covenant family here. What better place to find comfort and confidence in the, in the middle of a situation when your world is being turned upside down and you're in the middle of a crisis and there are fears that keep you up and down. Who better to turn to than the fellowship family? Run. Run to your brothers and your sisters that you're in a covenantal relationship with during times of crisis. Look, I'm not saying to not have friends. Yes, befriend the lost. Yes, befriend people in this community that don't go to Fellowship Baptist Church. Yes, befriend other Christians that don't go to this church. I'm not saying don't do that. But I'm saying when your world's crumbling around you, you don't need another friend. You need a covenantal partner to walk through it with you. I have two questions based on that. Number one, are you running to a covenantal brother or sister in Christ during times of crisis? And then number two, are you someone that others can trust enough to turn to? Are you someone that can be trusted to turn to? Can people trust you? Do people know that you walk with the Lord? Do people know that you can bear the burdens that they're going through? We've got to be that for each other. We're not a social club. We're not a country club. We're a family. We're a covenantal family bonded together by the, by the, the fire of faith. 
I'm thankful tonight, though, that even when our fellow brothers and sisters aren't near or available, we all knew it was coming to this. There's one who is. During times of crisis, run to Christ. Flee to the God you're in a covenantal relationship with. You see, we don't just have a covenant with people. We aren't just bound to the members of the kingdom of God and the body of Christ. No, get this. We are bound by covenant to the Alpha and Omega. We are bound by covenant to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Mercy. I was passionate about that this morning during Sunday school, teaching the the teens. Like, do you know who we serve? Do you know how big he is? Do you know how much he loves you? Do you know how much he cares about you? How unchanging he is? How merciful he is? Do you know that about your God? And that's the person, that's the person above all else, first and foremost, that we are allowed to turn to in our moments in crisis and times of need. What a blessing. But how is it possible? How in the world is that possible? Luke 22 says, and he took bread, Jesus, and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Hebrews 10 says, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that, he had said before, this is the covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with them. After, the, after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts. And in their minds, I will write them. And their, oh, mercy, listen, please. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more suffering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, please write this uh, reference down. Uh, go circle in your Bible, highlight it, uh, write it on an index card, memorize it, put it in your heart forever. Listen to this. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter to the holiness by the blood of Jesus. How? By a new and living way, which was he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So, how in the world do we have this covenant through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that's how. Amen. It took a great price. It took a steep price. Hey, listen, I don't know if you know it this morning, but we're Gentiles. We're Gentiles. We weren't afforded the promises of Abraham and Noah. We, we didn't get that. Not until someone came and said, I'm going to open up a way to make this happen. This Jesus who stepped down from his throne in heaven, who gave up the luxuries of of governing the world right next to his father, who died a, a criminal's death, who was slain by the hands of wicked men, whose blood was shed before the whole world. That is who and that is why we get to have a relationship and a covenant with God Almighty. To our covenants with. That means that during times of crisis, when it seems like your world isn't going to hold together, you can run to the person who holds all things together. You can approach his throne. You can pour your heart out and find grace there that you cannot find anywhere else. I've got a lot of amazing people in my life. A lot of amazing people that I can call at any moment. 
And they'll be there for me. They'll talk to me. They'll help me. But I've yet to find any greater comfort than I have right here in Hebrews 4.16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The throne room of God is open 24-7. That's a long time. At any moment and any day, you can run to your covenant partner in Jesus Christ in the throne room and pour out your burdens, pour out your fears, Pour out what's keeping you up at night. Paul says, be careful for nothing. But by everything, in prayer, supplications, let your requests be made known unto God. And the God of peace will give you peace? You'll receive peace? You're guaranteed to receive help? You're guaranteed to obtain mercy and grace every time you enter that wonderful throne room? Why would we choose anyone else to run to? During times of crisis, run to those who you are in a covenant relationship with within the family of God. But first and always first, Run to the one who paid your admission into the covenant that you have with God himself. He's it. He's the, he's the real Jonathan. He's the real one we flee to. Look, with David, everything in this chapter was out of his control. He asked, what have I done? What have I done? Why is he trying to kill me? I've done nothing. What treason have I committed? Jonathan, help me out here. He did nothing wrong. He didn't ask for all of this to come upon him. And the crisis and the situations that you're going to face in life will oftentimes not be because you asked for them. You didn't put out a crisis wanted ad in the newspaper. It's out of your control. But you know what is in your control? The covenant relationship you turn to, who you run to, who you flee to, who you trust to help bear burdens with you. Would you stand with me tonight?